Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Korean Annotators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. For today's interview, I am very excited to be joined by Ed Rubaker. We'll be talking about the works, including many comics you might be familiar with, including Reckless, Follow Me Down, The Ghost in You, both out this year, Friday Book 2, just ended via Panel Syndicate. Talk about that a little bit. And then, of course, the career includes many, many awesome, awesome comics, including Criminal, Captain America, Fatal, so much more. Ed, thanks so much for joining. Um, how are you doing today? We had a, you had a comics announcement today. You're, oh, you're yeah. With movies yeah, and stuff. How are things going? Yeah, busy day. <laughs> um, I just saw I saw that email had gone out a couple hours ago. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> I forgot yeah. we were announcing that today. Um, yeah, it's been in the system so long. I didn't realize we were going to announce it the day before a, a world a huge election, but um, but uh, it seemed to get a lot of pickup anyway. <laughs> um, everybody, you know, everybody's really just been wondering what Sean and I are going to do next. Anyway, no one's worried about the world. <laughs> yep. No, it's it's it's. We'll talk about that a little bit. I think we have time, but let's let's spend a little bit of time starting here with um, with Reckless. This is the series of graphic novels that uh that you've been producing now basically since the pandemic started you know it kind of came yeah. out of that um touching back on some of those those noir and crime and kind of pi investigative novels that you were a fan of and there are five now that are out two of yeah. which came out this year yeah um one thing i'm super curious about with reckless so uh your collaborations with sean phillips are are like uniquely monogamous yeah. <laughs> in comics yeah you know, they're they're the medium is full of famous pairings but but rarely so consistent um yeah it's much more european in a way than american comics in a lot of ways yeah how did how did the two of you continue like how do you keep the romance alive like how do you continue <laughs> challenging each other <laughs> and staying engaged you um know? i mean i think we just both really like to sit alone in our rooms and work a lot like we email pretty much you know like Five or six days a week, we'll email back and forth with each other about like work or, you know, how's work going. Where it's like our our career right now, other than that, we focus on graphic novels. Like our our creative relationship is basically the same as it's been for the last ten or fifteen years. Where I just sort of email him chunks of script and he starts drawing, and then I just keep writing and keep sending it to him as we go. And I think the both of us. Uh, in the early days, when we first started working together, the, one of the things we talked about a lot was, you know, uh, like European graphic albums and teams in Europe that would put out a lot of, you know, different work. And we both kind of aspired to that as, you know, as a thing that you could do in comics that, you know, not a lot of people did, like, and especially in American comics. Like, why didn't, you know, Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore do like 20 other projects together after Watchmen? You know, like, right. it's just not as common in comics in America, at least. And, you know, we just really loved working together. And so when we finished Sleeper, I just sort of pitched him the idea for Criminal when we were on a on a trip to like a festival in Portugal or Spain or something. Um, and I pitched him the idea for Criminal as like a thing where every time every time we did it, it could be like a completely new thing with completely new characters. And if he wanted to change the design, he could do it like because both of us don't want to just do the same thing over and over again even though, right. you know, there are people who would say that's what we do. <laughs> but, but, um, but, you know, we always try to like push ourselves in some way or another, like the, the new book, uh, the one that got announced today, like Sean is drawing that art bigger than anything he's ever drawn before. Like he's drawing at the size that Wally Wood drew in the fifties, um, mm. like double up is what they call it. And, you know, and, uh, it's just, 
it's one of those things we both kind of like to do uh, do something for a while and then we kind of need a break and go in a different direction. So like we've never, you know, I, I mean, we never got lucky enough to have like a walking dead where it became like our huge runaway hit like that, where we were ever forced to, you know, face the question of, should we just keep doing this or not? Uh, but I think we would probably stop even that because all of our stuff is, you know, relatively successful for at this point in our career, especially like our books do better and better every time. So yeah. we just creatively like meshed on that level of like what we wanted from our careers. So we just kind of, once we started doing criminal, it was just kind of understood. We were just going to keep working together until we died. Or <laughs> yeah. I doubt we'll die together unless we're flying like on a, on a, like a, the old man, like, you know, signing tour that we've never done. <laughs> that actually sounds, that sounds like a kickoff we'll to a criminal story. Yeah, the day that comedy, you know, died. is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. No, that's awesome. And like, obviously the work has, has been uh, phenomenal and you both enjoyed success together. Um, and, and why stop now? So you mentioned with night fever, so Sean's working double up, which is super interesting. Yeah. Does that translate to a larger package ever release or does it just mean then it shrinks down and you get like extra detail because he's drawing on a larger scale um no no yeah we're not releasing it bigger the book will be the same size as like the reckless books and and it's it's about it's like a 120 page book i think um but um you know we may do like oversized stuff you know down the line with stuff always um but yeah it was more just uh just that sean wanted to try something different with the art and it it was it took a little uh it took me a, like at least a few pages of seeing how he was drawing the pages to sort of understand how to write for the different grid that he's doing because he has mm. to draw it in like two half pages at a time because you can't scan the art because it's so big <laughs> and you can't get paper that big anymore for drawing comics on um yeah so um yeah it, but it's uh it's more i think just about you know just sort of stretching himself it's funny because i looked at it and i was like wow there's so much detail are you is this taking you way longer drawing he's like no this is just the same <laughs> like this insane this guy's insane <laughs> yeah he's the most nice. consistent nice. artist in comics and he just keeps getting better somehow like i don't get it yeah it's super great stuff yeah. it's amazing and now and now with the colors by jacob phillips who's yeah. doing awesome awesome work of his own um, yeah i just as actually was reading that texas blood earlier today and i'm like oh man this is such yeah. a good book no i know jake uh we just got to make sure jake never gets so successful that he ever leaves <laughs> yeah right either that or just sign a lifetime contract like sean and i did <laughs> yeah trick him into it there you go yeah. now you've talked about the the comfort food nature of reckless in the past um particularly during the start of the pandemic and yeah. how it was you know it kind of a return to some some work and genre that you love as we move further from those early days of the pandemic and kind of the the genesis of that into whatever this is yeah <laughs> now i don't know what yeah, to call exactly. it do you feel the need to progress like to something like I guess with night fever like what is it darker is it you need you feel the need to progress something more challenging like what is kind of the push there no I mean like reckless started out as you know trying to do that kind of comfort food light kind of fare but I mean the first book is you know it has its moments but it is they're all like uh, that's as nice as my, that's as like fun as my stuff gets. <laughs> you know? Like there's fun in it here and there. And he's a fun character and everything. But I felt like 
with each book, the stories got like more and more sort of serious. And as much as you love seeing these characters interact and stuff, I couldn't help but lay in like all this nostalgia and melancholy and hints at the future and all that stuff. So, um, with Night Fever, it was more just, we'd done five of these over the course of, uh, you know, I started writing the first one, I think in like August of 2020. And, uh, I think I wrote five of them in like uh, just a little, like a month over two years. So it was a lot to like put down. And I got to the end of the eighties and I just thought I need to, I need to sit a minute and figure out like what the next book needs to be. Are we just going to move through the nineties? Are we going to jump forward to the future? Like, what are we, you know, what is right. now that we've done five books that, and I felt like each book was a little bit different than the ones before, especially four and five sort of showed that, the characters are more elastic and the, and the, you know, the world of the book could be more elastic to do, you know, it's the same as criminal. Like once I did a certain amount of them, I realized like, Oh, I could do anything within this. Mm. Um, but with night fever, it was a thing where like Sean has been bugging me for about 10 years to set a story in like England or Europe or somewhere that he's actually been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably been to America like less than like two weeks of his life or something. Yeah. Well, maybe if you add up all the Comic Con days, it's like a couple months of his life. But um, but yeah, it's like his his uh, amount of research that he has to do for every thing that we write is like where where does it take place? Like what do I you know? So um, I'd been promising for years I'd write something that took place either in Europe or or London, and uh, so this was finally like we had this we got to this point and I just was trying to think of what to do next. And Sean was like, I'd like to do something like just a little bit shorter and like, you know, maybe that European thing we talked about. And so I just like, suddenly I, I sat down and I was like, well, what could I do that fits that? And I remembered this idea that I just kept coming back to every couple of years. And I just thought, Oh, maybe that works. And I sat down with that for like an afternoon. I was like, okay, yeah, let's do that. And, um, and it was more just like the the need for like just doing something different after a couple of years of reckless, you know, like I spent a lot of time with those characters. I've kind of like, I'm kind of heartbroken for those characters in some ways after spending so much time with them. Like, I feel like I know them so well and, you know, I know readers are, you know, I get a lot of mail from readers about like, what's going to happen to Anna? Like, stop teasing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm super nervous. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's, 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 you know, the thing that I loved about doing the reckless books so much was just being able to get them out that quickly. And we were really lucky because for the first year and a half of the pandemic, printing prices were still the same as they were before the pandemic. And then like the last, like the second year, like it cost us so much more to print books four and five of Reckless than it did to print the first three. It was like yeah. ridiculously more expensive. And one of them like raised at the last minute on the day of printing, which was just mm. like, ow. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so now we're like trying to work further ahead so we can print overseas where prices are still, you know, reasonable enough to make this worthwhile. <laughs> mm. um, because we like to do a really nice package. So, you know, those end, end up being, you know, not the same paper as everyone else and not the same, you know, cover stock. So we're like, oh, yeah. so obsessed with the packaging of our stuff <laughs> that, that it's like, oh, okay, this is costing a lot now. Um, it is nice though. I mean, it is, I mean, definitely the fans appreciate that. You know, you, you love holding it in your hands. Like, it, it gives it that print 
value as well, which obviously yeah. like the split between print and digital is whatever. Um, but it is one of those things where it's yeah. like, I personally, I always feel better and just have a better time if I get the chance to actually hold something like that. Yeah. And the read only it. Thing you know, I, it's just it's more fun. Yeah, the only thing I read digitally is something I can't find in print or I need to read right away for like some, for some reason I need to read a thing immediately for like an interview or you know something. Um, but yeah, I just yeah I will always prefer print. I mean I'm a I was raised like you know print is is just you know my god basically like my well my dad was a huge book and comic collector when he was a kid and throughout his whole yeah. life he was a huge book collector and. So I just assumed all houses came with just walls covered in books. And when I'd go to someone else's house and I was like, where's all your books? Like, doesn't everybody yeah. just have every wall in every room covered in bookcases? <laughs> I was like, no, that's actually called an addiction. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, um, I think, you know, that, that obsession with like the design and the packaging and the paper and all of that stuff, that's another part of like why we like to, switch things up is because it allows us a chance to try, you know, new things and, you know, even new paper. You know? Sure. Yeah. Now I'm curious, it, it feels like, you know, with Reckless, okay, there's going to be a, a pause as you kind of figure things out, figure out where that story's going. Um, but it also is, I've kind of been looking through the works, like criminals always, always open, right? I saw yeah. you said in your newsletter recently, you have the idea for the sequel to the fade out. Yeah. Do you kind of consider like a kind of just a, like, is everything kind of open door fair game? We could go back to it. Like, is there anything that's closed um, at this point? Well, the fade out was one where I just did it. You know, it was like a dream project that I thought no one will ever like green light a thing like this. And then I got my deal at image where we could, you know, Sean and I got our deal at image where we could do whatever we wanted. And I thought, yeah. okay, well, you know, I'll just do the thing that I couldn't figure out how to pitch to anyone that would sound like commercial at all. Um, and, you know, and then it turned out to be like, probably it's among our biggest selling books ever, like the collected edition of it, the paperback, it's like gone through nice, like, yeah. like a bunch of printings over the years. Um, and, you know, I, I still get feedback on people from it. And I'd had an idea, like while I was working on it, uh, for like a couple of you know, books that would be like 10 years later and 10 years later in the same world, but with different characters or maybe a couple of the same characters, you get to see what happened to them like years later. But similar to the way like Elmore Leonard or, or uh, James Elroy would do, you know, stuff like that, where, you know, it's it's similar to Criminal, I guess, too. But, um, you know, it's not it's not a for sure done deal because I can't quite crack the title for the book yet <laughs> mm. until I know what to call it. I, I can't totally start writing it. Um, but I know I, I basically like I finally kind of cracked the different pieces of the story that were all coming together for that one. So I was like, oh, OK, because that's been kind of nagging at me for about five years now, this idea that's been slowly building. Um, but, yeah, that's kind of how it is with me. It's like. I will have five or six ideas that are sort of on the back burner as what, whatever I'm writing, like with reckless, once I start, once I started making the plan for reckless, it was going to be three books. And then I would take a break and figure out what the next three were or something. And then when I told Kirkman after he read the first one and, and, and I told him the plan, he was like, wait, you're going to, you're going to stop at three. What's wrong with you? <laughs> He's like, no, do five and then take a break. And then when it, when 
I reminded him that he said that. He's like, what am I talking about? You should do 10 and then take a break. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, but yeah, um, I think, you know, when he said do five, I thought, maybe he's right. Maybe I'll, maybe we'll, maybe we'll stay around a little bit longer and, you know, we'll have those five. And so I kind of, I had vague ideas for what books four and five would be in my notebook, but I really had to sort of scramble, you know, when I, when I decided to do that, I had, you know, I had been thinking about the, you know, the next couple books basically to try to figure out what they'd be. Um, and then I thought, okay, well, I'll put that on hold for like a year and we'll do two more reckless books. And, you know, we'll have put out five books in less than two years. I think it was 22 months that we put out five books. So that's kind of insane. I don't think anybody in comics will ever put out five graphic novels in that short a time in America, at least maybe in Japan. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe the manga cadence. Well, I mean, it's really unusual. <laughs> it was a nice, it was a nice consistent thing at the shop though. You know, like yeah. it was, it was definitely cool to see like, Oh, like, Hey, here's the whole thing packaged as a yeah. solid graphic novel again, you know, and, and you two have the reputation where you can, you can do that. I mean, yeah. you need the serialization. And right? stores were ordering it practically like they were ordering the new first issue of a regular, like $4 comic, yeah. you know, and it's a $25 yeah. hardback. So that was the big shift for me was getting to the point where our books were doing, especially our hardback books were consistently making shops enough money that they were willing to advance order in high numbers instead of just constantly reordering. Cause then you're just gambling and you're like, is this going to sell? And, you know, we do significant overprints on these books, but we've actually even had to go back to print on the first reckless book, which was the highest print run of anything we've done, I think. So I was really shocked. I, yeah. Oh, I thought, I thought we printed enough to last for like five years. <laughs> so, yeah. so it, that's a good problem to have each, each book that comes out, you know, you move more of the first couple books. Um, you know, as people see them, you know, and now that we have five out, like, you know, they're all kind of moving pretty well. Uh, they kind of sell each other a little bit. Um, sure. Right. Yeah. And when we come back, like, I still want us to do at least two books a year. I, I'd like to have a couple of years where we, where we actually put out like three shorter books, you know, cause I love doing the shorter stuff too. It's, it's harder actually to do the shorter books than the longer books as a writer. Um, mm-hmm. Cause you have to figure out how to end it a lot sooner. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Now would pulp would, I, I forget the actual length. Like does pulp fit more in the novella? Yeah. Yeah. Very much a novella. It was like 72 page book. Okay. Right. Yeah, Cause that's a super tight. Yeah. Pulp and awesome the story, and yeah. monkeys were both that were both 72. And then I decided seeing how quickly Sean drew those. I thought that was when I did the math and I realized we could do books twice that long and still get like two or three of them out in a year. Yeah, it was just thought, okay, let's try that because no one's doing that really. <laughs> yeah, no, truly. I yeah. mean, it's it's a pretty open market. As well, that's why I was so afraid of being off the stands, like which is crazy, you know. But that's just how you feel as a comic book person. Like I've been doing comics my whole life, but I've been being published steadily since the late nineties. So mm-hmm. having months where we don't have anything new in the in the comic shops is always I always like, oh god, are people going to forget us? And, you know, mm-hmm. it was like really good that I think the, the second book came out only like three months after the first one or three and a half months or something like a crazy turnaround on that. Cause you know, we able, we were able to bank like most of the book before the first one came out. Um, but yeah, it was just, you know, I mean, I think by the time we were nearing the end of the fifth book, we were both so exhausted from 
the schedule of just because you know you're also having to do you know you I mean you know a lot about comics obviously so you have to you know solicit the book like a year and a half ahead of time through the system it feels like or like a year ahead of time or something like that so you're you're thinking ahead on all these different books at the same time while you're writing one you're like giving them the cover and the solicitation information for the next one. So it can get a little much like when it just feels like, uh, you know, it, it's not as bad as doing monthly comics where you're constantly have to, you know, stop and do a new cover. And, you know, Sean draws faster now that we're doing, you know, longer books actually, because he doesn't have to take a break hmm. every three or four weeks to do a new cover. So, oh, okay. I, yeah, I think we both are, are actually more productive without the having to think in terms of the monthly allotment. So, yeah, yeah, it's been a big thing. Do you feel like you're do you feel like you're missing anything without it or or actually maybe even just bigger picture? Do you feel like not having that ongoing serial nature? Does that say anything about the market or does it say anything specifically about is it just where you specifically are at in your career? You know what I mean? I think I think everything in comics is specific, kind of right. Like successful stuff is all kind of specific. Like every there's a there remember when Walking Dead was really huge and there was like a million other zombie comics that no one cared about. Yeah, right. Like everything sure. in comics that's successful is very specific. So I think the goal is to get to the point where you are that thing where like like Sean and I can switch over and just start doing graphic novels because we've been doing comics for you know, by the time we did that we were putting out comics consistently for like eighteen or nineteen years. So we had built up a readership and, you know, a fan base within the retail community too and in bookstores and stuff. So for us, it's like, it's an, it's a much easier shift. It would be much harder for people that don't have as, you know, big of names as us or a following as us, um, mm-hmm. you know, but we also, because of the, you know, the years and years of doing serialized stuff and working for Marvel and DC and all of that, we also have just kind of the gut instinct to know that we could kind of, make the switch and we weren't gonna suddenly be 80 pages in and like oh no we're blowing the deadline like we knew you know that you know at least sean would be on schedule (laughs) yeah and that keeps me on schedule (laughs) usually is there anything you miss about that sort of local comic shop grind experience you know like i don't know it's something like um I, like monthly feedback like more regular cadence of like hearing what people think is there, any, think is there I, any part of that that you're like oh that was fun um well i'm not on social media i do have a public email through like my newsletter and stuff yeah so um i get about as much feedback now i think as i did when we were putting out monthly comics i get about the same amount of email to the public email about what we're doing and there's a bit less stress in my life, I think. Um, I still go to the comic store, you know, all the time. <laughs> so I still get the buzz of, of other people's stuff. But but I do feel kind of like, maybe it's just because we're at this point in our career where we're older and we've been doing it for a while, but I feel more precious about everything we do in a, in a way. Like I always have been super, mm. you know, I think both, of, both Sean and I are obsessive compulsive about you know, the control freak nature of our work. Like he's super control freaky about the design and print stuff. And so am I, um, you know, so I think, uh, you know, that we only have to put out a couple books a year actually really kind of helps us in a way, just focus on those books and we can kind of be free from the, the sort of drama of what else is going on in comics at the moment. And like, I feel like we're kind of, it's like, we don't really, 
we've never really followed trends. I think the one time we maybe tried to follow a trend was like when I did, when we first came together to do sleeper, I was sort of trying to pitch something that Wildstorm would like, but you know, when we launched criminal, like the only other crime comic coming out was like stray bullets and a um, hundred bullets and ours didn't have yeah. bullets in the title. <laughs> you were the one crime, yeah. <laughs> but it didn't have the word crime basically in the title. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, there weren't a bunch of crime comics coming out, so it's like we've we've always sort of just done our thing. In fact, sometimes we react against you know whatever trend was to go the opposite way. Like I I remember when we announced the fade out, we were at an image expo, and every other thing getting announced besides like sex criminals was a sci-fi comic, like an action pulp sci-fi comic. There was a year where there 30 of them announced. And here's us with this weird little murder mystery set in 1948 Hollywood. And I was like, yeah. it couldn't be, it couldn't be weirder <laughs> like, compared to everything else that was out that they were putting out that, that time. So I kind of feel like we've developed our own, our own little niche and, you know, like I never want to get too uh, comfortable with it because, you know, I want to make sure everything we do is at least as good as the other stuff we've done, if not better. Um, you know, and I never get too much like, oh, you know, they'll like whatever we give them. It's like, no, I'm always in agony of like, God, are, is anyone going to like this? Like when we finish one of our books, <laughs> I've looked at it so many times. Like when Sean finishes the book, he puts together a PDF of the whole thing and sends it to me. And I read it over and over again for weeks, finding little bits and pieces of the narration that I want to like alter to make it read a little smoother or you know, things where I'm like, ah, oh, I don't need, you know, we don't need this caption here. Take that out and, you know, put some background over it or something. And, you mm -hmm. know, so I just agonize over them so much that by the time I'm done with it, I have no idea. I'm so close to it that I can't tell, like, did we pull it off this time? And so I have like mm -hmm. three or four friends that I send it to. And usually I'm always hoping for the response of like, oh, you fuckers, you did it again. Or, you know, oh, this one's even better. It's like, if they're just like, yeah, this one's good. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I count on you for to stroke my ego at this moment in time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, that's funny. No, that is amazing that that you're so like it's like that thing that you're so close to it that by the time you're done, it's just like a jumbled yeah. mess, and you don't even know <laughs> what's. I mean, I more. pray it's not, and you know, we've been doing it for long enough that I assume we know what we're doing. But you know, I remember watching an interview with Dan Harmon about his writing methods and at the end of the interview, he said, you know, but the problem is like, I can know all this and say all this, but like every time we finish writing an episode of Rick and Morty, like we have to start the next one. And it's like, Oh God, how the hell are we going to do this again? Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. it's writing is one of those things where even when you're really, you know, successful at it, or you feel like you're good at it, you often have those moments of like, Oh man, now I have to start over. Like every story is just as hard to write or maybe even harder than the one you wrote before. Cause you don't want to just write the same thing again. Mm -hmm. So you always mm -hmm. have to sort of challenge yourself or push yourself into another direction. What are the kind of things you look to challenge yourself on as far as like the ways you want to push yourself? Like what, like what is it, uh, is it doing like a, you know, genre type thing you've never done before? Is it working with character in a way? Like what, how do you kind of mentally think about how do I want to push myself on this next project? Um, I think more in terms of craft, I think at this point, like, well, when I'm okay. thinking about pushing myself, like I want to be better at when people read the comic, I want to feel like whatever the idea on the pages is, is like really hitting them in a way that's either funny or emotional or, you know, I think, I think more in terms of that than in terms of like genre or anything like that. Like I just want to write things that, 
especially right now, sort of uh, reflect back at people, like what it feels like to be living in our crazy world right now a little bit <laughs> um, and just sort of show people the, you know, something that, that reflects their own lives. Like, I feel like, you know, you, we write all these stories about different characters and stuff. And in some way, every, every story in any, every character in any story that you're writing, like, you know, if you have 10 main characters, they're all some part of yourself. Like Alan Moore probably didn't know when he was writing Rorschach that it was an autobiography. Um, you know, yeah, right. he, he then yeah. grew into, he grew up to become Rorschach and never compromise. Um, yeah. But you're always sort of writing yourself anyway. But the hope is that whatever parts of yourself you're putting in are also somewhat universal to everybody, even if it's specific to you. It's like something everyone's been heartbroken before. Everyone, you know, eventually loses a parent or a sibling or, you know, there's these these things or everyone, you know, has moments where they're afraid everyone in their life doesn't really love them as much as they want them to, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. Like I'm more about trying to be more efficient as a storyteller and more smooth. Like I'd like someone to get to the end of one of my books and feel like they got something out of it that they want to read it again and find You know, I try to put a lot of layers of things in there. Like in the fade out, there's several, there's four or five different storylines. Each character has like a whole storyline, but you kind of have to pick it up. If they're like a background character, you kind of have to, Put the pieces of their storyline together yourself and a lot of people haven't done that but the people that have are like oh hey dotty's gay and i was like yeah that was in there <laughs> right like, right that's it's actually stealthy there. all yeah. these there's all these storylines for all these characters buried in there so i try to layer a lot of stuff so like multiple reads are like worth worth your time actually but i also you know it's like sometimes i read a great graphic novel that makes me laugh or cry or really moves me, you know, and it can be, you know, it can be like the Sinner comics by Munoz and Sampaio really, you know, excite me and move me like the early ones, especially, I just love to look at over and over again, or like, you know, some Jaime Hernandez comics have moved me to tears, you know, sure. like Dan Klaus makes me laugh and, you know, sort of hate humanity at the same time. Like, yeah. um, I mean, there's just so many great graphic novels that have come out in the world. And I just kind of want to create something that, that hopefully like means something to somebody basically. Like, that's what I think about every time is like, well, okay, what if this is the last one we're doing? Like, I hope this one is like something that somebody's like, this is the coolest graphic novel that ever came out. And then someone else yeah. is like, you're fucked. Killer be killed is the best thing they've ever done. And everything they did since then sucks. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, like, yeah. Like I love when people are arguing about our books. <laughs> like, but uh, but yeah, I just that's what I think about is like how can I how can I use less words and more pictures? You know, how can I use Sean more and not talk over him so much? Like I, I look at stuff like that all the time, and just like how can I how can I sort of refine what we're doing or what I'm doing as a writer, or how can I push it and do things that I haven't done before? And you know, because Honestly, I probably have spent more time looking at and reading comics in my life than I have like talking to people. Like I was an introverted little weird kid on a military base, like for, mm -hmm. you know, the first eight years of my life and comics were like my first language. So yeah. like, I feel like I can do things in comics. Like I also make a living as a screenwriter too. And 
I can do things in comics that, you know, maybe 10 years from now, if I keep screenwriting, I might be able to pull off those same kinds of things. But in comics, it's just instinctive for me. So that's what it's like for, you know, like I just am trying to, you know, just get better basically. And, you know, I think less and less in terms of like whatever the genre is like night fever, I referred to as a Jekyll and Hyde story in the solicit to teaser yeah. thing, but I mean, it is a little bit, but it was more just like, cause the, the, the book itself is actually so different than a lot of our stuff, though it looks a lot like a lot of our stuff, but it's, it's really bizarre compared to a lot of our stuff. And I wanted to make sure there was at least some kind of, you know, phrase in there that would make someone get an idea of what the book was about. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, for it's me, mysterious. Yeah, still. exactly. But it is like, you know, that's the book where like, right now I'm really trying to push and, you know, be like, okay, what, what else, what have I forgotten to put in this book or what, you know, what narrative techniques can I use, you know, for this transition that'll be, you mm. know, really like, you know, fun for the reader or have those moments where they're like, oh, oh my God. Like I came up with the idea for having Sean do a do do like some drawings in color on a black page so that you wouldn't even know you're looking at, at what you're looking at until you until you hold the page at an angle so you could see it in the light because there'd be color on the oh black. fun yeah it's just like i just want to i want to play around with the form as i sort of try to push our stuff into you know more sort of pure and pure uh you know art i guess yeah yeah i love that no it's awesome now you mentioned I think one thing that really comes through in your, your work and certainly in interviews that I listen to is just your passion for comics. You know, like you said, they're so ingrained in your DNA. Yeah. Um, you've had some really good stories lately, you know, Bad Weekend. Um, I think going back to Criminal, Last Days of the Innocent, you know, just yeah. the history of comics stuff, right? Where the, yeah. where the industry side of things um, is, is often maligned and rightfully so. Um, you mentioned a moment ago, have you read the, the Alan Moore what we can know about Thunderman, this new. I have it, but I haven't out. read it yet. I started reading that story. I'm I'm in the midst of like a couple of major writing things outside of the comics, so I haven't had the time to. What I thought was hilarious was like that it was kind of written in a almost Victorian style for a story about comics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was like wow, no, it's... I got it on book on tape originally. And I'm like, this is not one you're listening to on tape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's a weird one. It's like tape. you get five sentences in, and you're like, okay, who are these? people and what is this book and <laughs> yeah yeah i'm really yep. really really curious to see it because i'm you know i'm not one of those like alan moore's a crazy mean old weirdo like i love alan moore i mean whatever he's yeah. a he's a crazy artist and he said whatever he said and if you take personal offense to your artist not liking to you know an artist not liking a genre that you know that you love then you know like i don't know like alan moore wrote some of the best comics i ever read growing up and i you know I think he's, you know, I think he was pretty fantastic. So I'm really curious to see what he said, but I hear it's really mean. <laughs> it's, it's very dark and cynical in many ways. And, uh, but it has these moments of like very pure sort of childlike passion for the medium as well, where you can, I, I feel like you can there, tell that, that this is coming from someone who loved comics. Yeah. That scene, there's like a scene in the first couple of pages. Cause I read the first couple of pages. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna have to come back to this. This is like a hundred pages long. Um, yeah, it's long. But yeah. there's like a scene where he, where the kids where he's like flashing back his memories of discovering comics as a kid yes. in, the, in the barber shop or the or the drugstore or something, and 
that gave me the most vivid memories of like being yeah. a kid and going to the grocery store with your mom and like ditching her immediately to go to the magazine section and try to find, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, trying to grab the Archie digest on the, on the way out to force them to buy it. You know, like I had so many vivid memories of that. And I just realized like, that's kind of what comic book people are. Like we're all, oh. we're very much like nostalgic in a way, like, you know, when I'm going through like depressions or something, I will sometimes want to go back and read like comics that, you know, that I mm -hmm. loved in, in other times, like younger, when I was younger and life seemed more carefree, you know, or yeah, something. Sure. And it's like, it brings you back to that moment. It's like, it's funny. I, I, uh, recently had some, some time where I had to sit around and just, you know, wait for people. And I was just watch, I was just like binging an old TV show. And I was like, I'm going to watch that 70s show again from the beginning. And it was weird because okay, like, I have nostalgia for having been a child in the seventies. So it was like that show tapped that nostalgia, but then it also tapped the nostalgia for having watched that show on TV when it was on, when I was like yeah. I was dating my wife and living in San Francisco. And it was like, it was this weird double nostalgia that I was like, I wonder what would happen if I thought if I watched happy days and I'll be like triple nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. But I feel like that's a show in the seventies about an older era. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like that's a big part of comic book fandom is like, we're all sort of caught up in this nostalgia for whatever era of, of comics we discovered, but also we all have whatever moment it is when it's like the first time someone ever gave you a comic or you ever saw a comic somewhere. And it's like one of those moments that really, you know, even as a kid, you probably were like, that was the greatest moment. Like, but it sticks with you for your whole life. Like I, I think, I think comics saved my life as a kid. Like, you know, hmm. I was a loner kid who had to move like, you know, a lot when, you know, and, I, if I didn't have comics, you know, I don't know who I would have even be, been, you know, it's like, I grew up, I only started writing because I wanted to draw comics. And so I was like, well, I don't have any, yeah. I asked my brother to write a story for me to draw. And he said, no, <laughs> he was older and was not interested in comics actually. Um, and so I started just writing things and I would just sort of, you know, I'm like, okay, I read a bunch of Spider-Man comics and then I would write something that was sort of like a Spider-Man story and start drawing it. And you know, I would never get through it because I would get like five pages in and be like, all right, well, this isn't good enough. And then I'd start over. But that was like my whole childhood was doing stuff like that. And I, and I really feel like that really had a huge, you know, impact on my childhood and, and sort of made it a much happier childhood than it could have been otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. No, it's, it's the sequences you're describing are exactly what I'm thinking of when I say like there was like, a real emotional sort of purity yeah. that I was, I was connecting with, but then like, but if you keep going, then like, yeah, like three sure. pages later, it'll be like the darkest, like, meanest <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing about Alan Moore is like, I was there at the San Diego comic-con that he was at the only time he ever went to San Diego comic-con. Mm -hmm. I was like a teenager and I was the biggest Alan Moore fan in the world. I was front row at every single panel he was at including the one where Jim Shooter got up in the audience and started yelling at him and Frank Miller and Gary Groth on the stage. And oh, Jack Kirby and his <laughs> wife were sitting in front of Shooter and they stood up in the audience and started yelling at Jim Shooter. And so I was there oh, at that convention and I was at the panel where they announced Watchmen and DC mm. Comics specifically announced it as a creator-owned book that would revert back to them a year after publication. It was this huge thing yeah. because they were using it to rub Marvel's face and their big mess with Jack Kirby that was happening at that exact same moment. 
So oh, DC like okay. got all the goodwill of this thing. And then it became successful. They like, you know, I mean, there was so many different ways they could have handled that that would have been more equitable than just keeping the same deal in place and pissing off the best writer in comics. Like they could have just said, okay, well, look, it's turned out to be really successful. So here's what we're going to do at, you know, from now on, we're going to split the profits 50, 50, you know, sure, and that would right. have been equitable and fair because, you know, like the book has earned billions of dollars. It's been constantly in print. It sells like a hundred thousand copies a year or something ridiculous like that. Like mm -hmm. it's one of the best selling comics of all time, <laughs> you know, and mm -hmm. you know, they did it and people are like, well, DC paid them to do it. But it's like, yeah, but, Think about that initial investment, like page rates back then. I, I doubt Alan Moore was getting a hundred bucks a page to write that book. He might yeah, have been getting 80, 80 bucks a page. Like comic books didn't cost that much. They're not a very big investment on their big investment. When you want to start doing comics and you have to find someone to do your comic and you're a single person. But when you're DC comics or you're a giant corporation, comics are the smallest possible investment. That's why DC was considered at that time, part of uh, Time Warner's R&D division, because it was just mm. a complete write off their budget. They didn't need to make a profit during that time period at all. So yeah. like, there's the, the whole argument of like, well, they invested the money. It's like, yeah. And they made it back like two months later. Like at that right. point, all <laughs> right. it's like, yeah, you, you wish you'd invested in it then too. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. well, I wish I'd paid them to do Watchmen and I was working at a comic store when it was coming out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just, I'm always like, Alan Moore's righteously bitter. Like he got multiple mm -hmm. fucked over and, you know, I wish he wasn't bitter at Dave, Dave Gibbons, you know, who I think is one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. And, you know, but, you know, uh, I, I just, uh, you know, I think the older people get to the easier they get sort of cranky. So I'm curious to see, I guess this is supposedly his last statement on comics or on the mainstream. That's what it's pitched as mainstream. Comics pitched as, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is. It's, it's kind of, a, I'd be curious. Maybe you'll, you know, if you cover it in a newsletter or something, whenever you get, there, oh, yeah, I'm I will. Super curious to read it. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's like, it is, it's a very sweeping history of the medium. Like yeah. it touches every, and I haven't even finished and it's like, it has touched everything. Um, so it's, yeah, it's an interesting work. It's an interesting work. Definitely. Yeah. I'm it's definitely going to read it. <laughs> cool. Cool. No, it's was, it was, it was funny. You mentioned that and I'm like, all right, I got to talk about this. Cause yeah. I'm this book. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, all right. So the timing on this worked out really nice. We've talked about night fever a bit, which, you know, just announced today. So folks can definitely check that out as it comes out. But we also, you just wrapped up Friday on um, the work you did with Marcos Martin and, and the second book, yeah, we have one more for the, for the second arc. Yeah, we have, yeah. Oh, there's, there's going to be a third, one third final arc. Yeah. There's three more chapters to this, to the main story. Each of the books so okay, far is, cool. the, is an, is an act of the story. So act three will yeah. be is it's it like we, for next year. Yeah. Hopefully next Christmas. Awesome. Got a mark. Got to draw faster. <laughs> so yeah. Right. So I, I read the sixth well, issue. <laughs> I read the, the sixth issue, which just came out, I think, on Halloween um, yeah. this last weekend. Yeah. And uh, Marcos and Munster just went to town on this issue. It's it's yeah. so, so incredible. It's joy to read. Well, I realized as much fun as I'd been having, like making them draw this location and sort of flesh out the world of Kings Hill, like um, I hadn't given Marcos that much action there's a couple pages here and there every issue or so and there's like dramatic stuff happening and there's exciting stuff and all of them but i give him like four pages of her sledding through the forest or something and i realized yeah. like i've got one of the best action artists in the entire industry 
and I haven't given him a crazy action scene. And as I was finishing the previous chapter, I knew, you know, that this chapter was going to be like the confrontation chapter where we learned some stuff and, you know, the twist ending I knew from, you know, before I even started writing the first one. Um, but, uh, as I was starting to, to do it, I was like, you know what? I think she should just be in motion for like the whole first two thirds of the, of the issue, because I really want Marcos to have that chance to really show off. And, um, that fight scene inside her house where with the, yeah. when the cop sort of transforms into the monster. And I was like, it looks like Jinji Ito mixed with Steve Ditko or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like it was way creepier than I expected. Yeah. And I'm like, that is even cooler than I imagined it would be the, I wrote in the script that she tries to pull the ax out of her head and her face like pulls, you know, oh, with yeah. it. and the way he drew it yeah. was like, Oh my God, that's actually really horrifying. And this is like, <laughs> I know I, my friends let their kids read that one because it's the only book of mine that you could even show a kid. <laughs> you know? yep. Other than like one yep. episode of Batman Adventures that I did like 30 years ago or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, there you go. But yeah, so I was like, well, you might want them to be like 12 or older when they read this one because this, this, yeah, yeah. this specific chapter is very horrifying. <laughs> But yeah, he did such an amazing job. I was like, oh, that's as good as anything he ever did in Daredevil. <laughs> it does look awesome. It it looks so, so great. It's it's a really fun book for folks who haven't read it or don't know as much about it. Um, obviously we're talking about it in detail, but you know, it's a it takes the teen detectives premise, but it essentially is okay, but then what? Right? Yeah. And has her main character Friday. You know, she had gone to college and now she comes back to her her home. Of course she gets caught up in another mystery. Yeah, you know, like, like a lot of your stuff, it's very supernatural. When you go away, when you move away for the first time, whether to college or just to another town to live somewhere away from your parents and you come home for that first Christmas and everything feels weird because you run into your old friends. It's like you're not that far gone, but it feels weird to be back already. And, you know, and in right. this one, she's like a teen detective whose <laughs> his yeah. partner's still there being a teen detective. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a good time. Um, so yeah, people should check that out. How has the you know you mentioned all the the stuff with with Sean has been going really well in the graphic novels. Um, Panel Syndicate, you know, it launched as this you know pay what you want model, right? It's very it was very in vogue for a bit. I think Radiohead with in music, yeah. it was like kind of like okay, is this the future kind of thing? It seems like Panel Syndicate does well for itself. How does how does Friday do for for all of you on the pay what you want? Um, uh, I think it does it does well enough to you know to to just sort of make it viable for you know Marcos really to you know to sort of fund him and months of being able to to draw the book um, which you know considering how long it's taken them to draw every chapter that it's and you know because Marcos told me when we first started he wasn't going to work on a deadline because he didn't he he had he was to this point in his career where he never wanted to be unhappy with a page of artwork that he was sending off, mm. which is like insane because I don't think any artist will ever be not unhappy with pages in the batches that they're sending off. But yeah. um, when he told me that, I was like, Oh, that's kind of badass that he's just like, I'm doing this as long as it takes me to do it. And I mean, I think it's the best art of his entire career. Like I, when he sent me the first designs of Friday, I was like, Holy shit. This is, this is, you know, this is going to be humongous. 
but honestly, like I'm not much of a follower of the digital space, but everybody that I talk to who's more on the sort of business side or, or another creator who's much more up on the business stuff seems to think that the sort of bloom has come off the rose of, of digital like several years ago and it just sort of flatlined at a certain point. And, you know, even Amazon bought Comixology and hadn't figured out how to really make it, you know, you would have thought that would have busted wide open and it would be like the biggest thing in the world because it's Amazon. But um, if anything, it regressed. Still, <laughs> yeah, it's like, and I noticed like a lot of, a lot of my favorite, like cartoonists, you can't even get their work digitally. You can only buy it in print and hardbacks and, yeah. and softbacks. And I'm like, well, yeah, because it's just such a much more pleasurable experience to read a comic. When I used to have an iPad, which I got rid of like eight or 10 years ago, I just was like, I'm never using this thing. Like, but I remember when I would read comics on it, I would stop and check my email, like, like three pages into a comic. And I would never do that when I was printing, when mm. I was reading a print comic, I would like yeah. my whole life, I would have my like stack of comics or graphic novels or whatever. And just, you know, sort them in the order you want to read them in like a total comic book nerd. And uh, I used to, my biggest fights with my brother, my entire childhood was on comic book day when I'd come home and he'd, he'd come sit next to me. He's like, what'd you get? And he'd start messing up my pile. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> Unforgivable. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Total big brother behavior. Like, Oh, and I was like, don't that's I'm reading that last. Don't read that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I feel like the joy of comics to some degree and you know, I'm not super into the collectible side of comics, like all the variant covers and all of that stuff. But you know, there's another part of me that's like, if that's helping keep stores alive and it's helping keep the industry alive and print alive, then, you know, you know, more power to that then. But, but yeah, there's some part of me that's, that's always a little bit like, you know, like, is this, was digital really a big improvement for us or was it just a way for Marvel and DC to put all our work online and not have to pay us anything? You know, with like yeah. the, their subscription sites where they make like millions of dollars a year on subscription fees and don't give the creators a dime for that stuff. Because how do you monetize that? Oh, well, they read like, who knows what they read? And, you know, it's like, how do you monetize? They read three pages of one thing and 10 pages of another. And it's like, yeah, you know, right. the, eventually it's like, oh, the, the accounting is so complicated. We're just never going to do it. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Which is not a good answer. Yeah. And, so do you, and when you, you, get, stuff, you get literally nothing out of that? Oh, for like the subscription models? No, no. Yeah, because I I remember say in the past like all a subscription little bit, services other than like Netflix or like the streaming services we've all sort of subscribed to, but um, in general the subscription services uh, for books or music or film or TV or whatever the amount of money that goes to the artists is either nothing or like so much less than they would have made before those services were offering them to subscribers. So you have these multi-billion, these companies raking in all these subscriber fees, you know, and I mean, there's a, there's a really good argument that we just spent 10 years moving from cable to streaming. And all we really right. did was go in this giant circle. So you have to go buy like a package of screaming of streaming stuff. And all that we yeah. really did was get rid of residuals for people who create TV shows and movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the companies yeah. are now more powerful and they're more consolidated and they own the platform. They own every aspect from, from, you know, creation to delivery. And yeah. a lot of them even uh, are talking about trying to start publishing 
and like they want your publishing rights and stuff when they want to adapt your thing into a TV show or a movie. They also want to buy your publishing rights or just or just get them for free. Like even if they're not mm. a publisher, like someone like Netflix will try to will just they'll float that as if like they could do that, you know. And it's like you don't even have a publishing company. <laughs> like what do right. you want the rights for? <laughs> but right. everybody yeah. wants to be Marvel in DC, you know, because they see the mm-hmm. myths. Mm-hmm. Like it's weird to me that. I grew up in an era where you had to kind of hide the fact that you were a comic fan when I was a kid. Like it was considered yeah. super like uncool to be into comics. I like, like I've never quite understood the generation that grew up where like girls were into comics and video games that weren't thrilled about that because I would have killed to know a single girl who liked comics or video games when I, like my wife is the first girl I ever met who watched Blade Runner. <laughs> like, you know, I, mean, okay. I, I think I proposed yeah, yeah. her that day. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Again? <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's like the whole world has changed, and Marvel is like the biggest thing in pop culture of all time. Like, Stan Lee is the most influential person of the 20th century. It turned out in a weird way, or of the 21st century so far. It's, mm-hmm. it's really bizarre to me. And people get so mad when like someone like Martin Scorsese like bags on those movies. <laughs> It's so goofy. It's so goofy. I know. I know. It is like, can you, can, like, can we just win, like, graciously? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, things are good. Things are good. You know, yeah. just enjoy it. It's going really um, well. And yeah. most of the stuff is actually, what. that's what's crazy about it is how, how, like, enjoyable so much of it is. Even the stuff where I feel like, you know, okay, I didn't need to see, like, you know, that many explosions in Act 3 or whatever. Like, sure. But it's like... Now they're making weird, quirky ones. Like I loved the Shang Chi movie, actually. Like yeah. that was that was super fun. Like uh, you know, an Aquafina in a Marvel movie. Like what the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a good time. I like that movie. Yeah, for sure. No, like the more off the beaten path stuff, I think they can do too, and take some chances, get a little weird. Yeah, um, I think that'll that'll be a good thing for it. You know, change yeah. up the game a little bit. And those, you know, for as much as I, you know, can complain about not having made, you know, enough money off of any of any of that stuff getting adapted, like those Marvel movies have opened so many doors. I mean, I go into meetings, people know who I am because the, you know, because of the Winter Soldier, you know, and mm. and my other comics and stuff. Because now there's, you know, all these every every place in Hollywood, you know, is now run by the guy who used to be the assistant of the guy who, you know, would read the comics for them back in the day and now those guys are all like in charge <laughs> okay yeah yeah the people who used to be a, to read a thing and, and tell their boss about the comic that they need that they need to have a meeting with a guy about <laughs> and you yeah. go to the meeting and they'll be like so you're some comic book guy now those those people don't exist anymore in hollywood <laughs> you got to actually know it interesting interesting yeah, like, so how how is the adaptation side of things going i mean i know you're keeping busy i know there's been a lot of your works that have been picked up but what's, yeah. the, what's the what's the most exciting most top of mind stuff you got going down well, I've got two, uh, two, I'm at early stages on adapting two, uh, different of our, of our recent books into movies, actually. Um, one that's actually like already sort of getting set up somewhere. Um, and the other one that I, where I'm working with, uh, one of my favorite filmmakers, who's actually like a, a Oscar winning screenwriter and director. <laughs> And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like suddenly I'm like this guy, I, you know, I was well aware of his work and him as a person, but I had no idea. And he's not a comic book person. Someone just gave him this one book of ours and he flipped for it. And um, so, yeah, I'm working pretty much, you know, 
I divide my time about half between writing, you know, comics for Sean and Marcos and writing, you know, Hollywood stuff right now. And so, yeah, it's, but it's like, you know, I'm optimistic on these ones more than I've been on other times right now, but with the Hollywood stuff, it's like, even when I was doing the TV show at Amazon with Refn and it was like greenlit, like I thought it was yeah. greenlit and we were being paid to write all the scripts and we were, you know, opening up our production office and hiring people and everything. And then I remember one day when we were like, we had the list of actors that needed to be cast in the show, you know, and you know, for the main role, we had to have like a movie star to get And And I was like, well, what if we can't get a movie star? Can we just get like a really good actor? That's not that big. And they were like, no, <laughs> I was like, what, well, what happens if we don't? And they were like, oh, then they'll just pull the plug on the show. So like, if mm -hmm. we hadn't, if he hadn't signed Miles Teller to do that show, they just wouldn't have made that show. And I was yeah, like, but we've bonkers. spent all this, that they've spent all this money. And I would, and like, yeah, but that's that's just what they do, and like you know, especially at that point, I think now I don't think they care as much about movie stars there. Like the guy playing Jack Reacher, Reacher was like one of their biggest watch things, and like that guy was in like two TV shows before that. Like he's not a movie star, you know. Like yeah. and everybody loved him. So, um, but yeah, I think um, I think it's interesting to see you know the um, the changing market right now. Like I you know I worked on that. Uh, Batman show with Bruce Tim for um, the last year um, uh -huh. and you know like a month ago HBO Max pulled the plug on the show like well they didn't right. pull the plug they actually just said we're not going to air it on HBO Max and we're going to shop it instead like they didn't actually pause production even like we're making the show and okay. you know like it's it, no production has, has yet been paused but you know there's no official announcement about where it's going to be so um, weird, but yeah, it was really. It's, I feel like it's kind of shockwave through Hollywood of like now and now. Like I think other platforms are starting to look at how much they've been spending on stuff because they were they all went into crazy spend mode, and I think it, mm -hmm. like we all talked about this in Hollywood that there were this you know these things being built and they were doing vertical integration and all that stuff and that they were trying to consolidate and own everything. Be more in charge of their distribution and all the stuff that they've done, but we all expect it to happen slower. And I think the pandemic sort of made it go a bit faster, and maybe that's made it blow up a bit sooner too. Because with the Zaslav stuff at, at Warner, like it just felt like a little bit crazy until they announced the James Gunn, you know, thing the other day, right? Where you're like, oh, okay, now people are calming down because it's like, okay, they put one of the best Marvel guys in who also did the best DC stuff so far, probably, you know, of the recent stuff. Um, yeah. I, I he's not you, for sure. Mighty, you know, so it's like, Oh, okay. Like I trust that I like, and now I'm excited about what they're going to do next, you know, like for yeah. the first time, but, but you know, my show got sort of washed out in the, in the midst of that. So people, you know, hopefully we'll eventually see our show. And I think probably on the same schedule that they would have seen it before. But it's weird to me that Warner Brothers was willing to sell Batman somewhere else at this moment in this market. And now, because of that, I think other places are going to start reevaluating their choices and be like, well, could we get more for Star Trek if we'd sold it to, you know, Netflix or Amazon or somewhere else? Right. You know, like Criterion. Why don't we license Criterion, license the old Star Trek to Criterion, you know, with the original cuts? You know, or something like, why are they not monetizing this stuff as much as humanly possible is kind of what Zaslav is thinking, I think. 
that's so it's so funny too because this is exactly what you said where then it's like well now it's a decade ago <laughs> where yeah. you know the united states because everybody was trying to get all their stuff in-house and try to get it yeah know, this is our catalog right and this it's is funny because you know through the writer's guild you get these emails and it's all about you know the packaging 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 for a while and now it's all about hey where did residuals go <laughs> you know and it's like yeah like that's the problem is like in the old days when you used to work in TV, if they reran your episode of TV, you basically got your entire payment for that episode again. So like people who work who worked in TV in the seventies and eighties are still making bank on syndication money and stuff. And like, you know, I mean, those guys who, you know, got money on Seinfeld, like fucking Steve Bannon got a piece of Seinfeld because he worked for like some network that helped syndicate it or something. Yeah. It's, yeah. Okay. You know, like, those guys, they never need to work ever again, and they're still working anyway, you know? But, like, those days are so gone. Like, you know, it's mm. been so long since a outside studio or a production company could own a thing and anyone would buy it, really. Like, so I'll be curious. I, I'm hoping for that breaking apart and going back to the way it used to be more, where studios could develop the stuff and, and you know, own it and partner with well, instead of, you know, everybody wanting to only buy from themselves. It's just a weird, yeah. it's, it, it was a weird time in Hollywood and I'm really curious to see where it's going to go next. But, um, but yeah, I spent a few years I had right. Unfortunately, like, uh, I signed it. I was on an overall deal at legendary and we were trying to develop a couple of my projects. And then I worked on a couple other things for them during that. But like, right when we were about to go out with this huge, uh, thing where we had like a, like a huge director attached and, you know, everybody was really excited about this package for one of my books, the pandemic hit. And we just sort of sat there for months trying to figure out like, well, do we go out? What's going on? And the occasional thing was selling and everybody was still saying, well, we still, you know, we still want to hear pitches. And, you know, but of course, nobody, everybody was just sort of going about their business, but no one was really buying for the most part. It was not business as usual. So like that really kind of sucked the momentum out of, you know, my hope for getting something done. Cause I really felt like, okay, I've got a guy who everything he attaches to gets made right now. And, you know, he wants to do this. And it was like a mini series thing. So he was going to direct all three episodes. Um, and uh, you know, and then it's just, that's just gone now. And, you know, but I'm optimistic about the new stuff. Like the, I feel like both of them have elements. Like I have a, a movie star attached to one of them that is, you know, somebody who I, you know, I really love as like a person and, a, and an actor, um, who I've been envisioning for the character since I started writing it. And, um, people could probably guess who that is. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, they, you know, there's elements in these, you know, with a director and a star on, you know, a star on one and a director on the other, you know, that it's like you start building those elements and you get a better chance of actually getting it made. So it's okay. But yeah, yeah. Just, you know, you're just pushing that rock up the hill. The amount of great <laughs> yeah. scripts I've read that don't get made. It's like, I mean, Charlie Kaufman, you know, can't get everything he writes made and he's the greatest screenwriter who ever lived probably. So, yeah. Yeah. so you know, the, the Martin McDonough's of the world are few and far between who can sort of get, sure. You know, he probably, well, got, fingers crossed. He has like you five know, or six things at the light of day or two, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I know. That's the thing is like, I just, I've gotten jaded about it where it's like, sometimes when someone calls 
like about one of my books, like inquiring about the rights, I actually just get depressed because I'm like, oh, now we're gonna have to go through this whole dance again. And then it's never gonna be made. And so I've been doing it for long enough now that I've kind of, that it's like, you know, it, it really has to be like a, you know, like if George Clooney called me up, I'd be falling all over myself because I'm such a fan of his and, you know, would love for him to work on any of my stuff. But, you know, it's like most times when people call me up about stuff, I'm like, okay, sure, set up the meeting. And, you know, I just treat it like it's just any other work, but it's just like, it's so different from comics because everything yeah. in comics comes out. <laughs> yeah, like, it's such a different world because it's like I want that for you know I thought that maybe my my like ego and whatever ability I have as a screenwriter or as just a creative force and you know whatever coming from comics into film or TV like that I would be able to sort of just you know bring it over and and just have that same kind of you know luck and boy, it is, it is very hard. Like, and I talk to people, we don't seem alone in that. No, no, that's the thing. And I look across the comics board. Yeah. There's a great, uh, Vince Gilligan quote when he was talking about when they were making the pilot for better call Saul, I think, and he wasn't sure if it was going to be any good. He said, you know, when you're making an episode of TV, you never know if it's going to turn out good or bad. And it's just as hard to make a bad one as it is to make a good one. Mm. Like you're, you're, yeah. you're doing all the exact same things and then it cuts together and you're like, oh, this didn't work. Um, so that's the other thing with film and TV is like, even when someone adapts your book, if it's, you know, like there's great filmmakers who've just made terrible adaptations of stuff. And then you have something like a simple plan where it's like Sam Raimi and it's like the least Sam Raimi movie of all time. Like it's a great movie somehow. So yeah, it's just weird that, uh, that, you know, like, it's just a gamble. Like, you know, you want your adaptation to be like Fight Club. You know, you're like, wow, that worked. <laughs> you know, right. that was perfect. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, and I think for the most part, it's like, you know, you just are lucky if it gets made at all. If it's good on top of that, holy shit. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, Small miracle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now you, you, you started out. You don't like about it anyway. If, when you're that close to it, I'm sure Lee Child sat and all the, everyone loved the Reacher show for the most part. I think it was a huge hit. And I'm sure Lee Child was sitting there like critiquing it in his head as he if he watched it at all, you know, probably, probably he watched it, 10 minutes yeah. of it and was like, that's enough. <laughs> you know? That's how people it, yeah. are. It's weird. It's like, like I couldn't read Catwoman after I left it. Like I've never read, I've read, I've read some of Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil. And I read ta Captain America because he was a friend of mine and we were talking about it while he was working on it. Um, okay, yeah. But generally, once I leave a book or a character, like when I was working at Marvel in DC, you just don't look at what happens with the character after that because you're just too close to it. So there's no way you could be objective. You, mm. you just you, Do you feel like too... Um... Is it too much like your head just keeps doing the thing of like, oh, I would have done this. Yeah, exactly. You know, just like like I would have never done yeah. that. Yeah, like when I worked at Marvel... And I, and we were doing all the Captain America Winter Soldier stuff in the book. Like I basically had domain over Winter Soldier. Like no, for a while, no one else could use the character at all. And then yeah. when I freed it up so that people could use the character, they had to run every script by me and Tom Brevoort. And we would like okay. give them notes and I would sometimes like give dialogue notes and, and want changes made and stuff. Cause I was so like protective and ownery of that character at the time. And, yeah. you know, like it, it was nice that they let me do that. But like the second I was gone, 
like the first couple things that I looked at that had the Winter Soldier in them, even by people, friends of mine, people I like, I just was like, oh, I don't, I don't, yeah, I wouldn't have done that. Or, oh no, that conflicts a thing that I put like five issues ago, or, you know, it's like, you know, stuff only I would care about or notice, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm I pretty saw, sure they pretty quickly send him into space. Like, I think he's like riding a motorcycle in outer. He's like space ghost rider or something. Yeah. 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 Like, I definitely wouldn't have done that. And I'm like, I don't know who did that, but, um, but I'm sure it felt like the logical next step to them at the moment. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. No, that makes sense. Um, okay. So you mentioned it. We don't know if it, when it's going to come out, where it's going to come out, the Batman Cape Crusader thing. I know a lot of fans were super excited I think about it, that. I, you, Bruce Tim. I am willing to bet like a hundred bucks. I'll bet you a hundred bucks right now that it actually comes out. I believe it will. Okay. So I, I can't take I mean, that bet, but I, I want to encourage you to make that bet. It would be crazy, right? <laughs> if, if the new Bruce yeah, Tim so cartoon did not come out. And, yeah. but yeah, I've seen animatics for like half the season and, you know, the voice, the voice recording for the whole season is done. And, you know, it's like, we're deep into it, you know, like what, do, how do you feel about it as far as like the vision and it, like, what about it is unique or like, what about it to you is, is feels like a special potential well, project. It's funny because I just wanted to do one episode initially. Like I reached out to Bruce who I, you know, have known for I don't know how long since I think I met him through Darwin way back in the day, like 20 years ago through Darwin cook, um, at like a wonder con or something. Um, and you know, I was like, we're always friendly, but not friends or anything. And then I ran into him at a dinner at the last San Diego before the pandemic. And, you know, we talked a little bit more and, um, I think just at some point, um, like they announced the show and at like a month or so later, I just emailed him. Cause I assume when they announced the show that they were far into it before they even announced it. And they had like a, they had a, a pitch document that sort of covered the base Bruce's Bruce and James's like take on what they wanted the show to be. And, you know, he had sort of, you know, pitched that to JJ Abrams and Matt Reeves who were really excited by it. And, so that was what got the show sold originally. And so I reached out and I was like, look, Hey, I don't know if you're freelancing episodes or how you're doing it, but you know, if you want to throw me one, you know, it's kind of like a bucket list thing for me. Like I loved, you know, the Batman. I don't think I would have written Batman the comic if I hadn't watched those cartoons because I, I, at, a, at the point when those cartoons were coming out, I didn't think I didn't, I wasn't reading superhero comics anymore. And I didn't think I had any ideas for superhero comics or that I, mm. I had any interest in them. And I remember the first season of that show being so good. And there was like an episode where it was like a, the first scarecrow episode. I don't know if you're, are you yeah. familiar with the old one? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So there's this first scarecrow episode and Bruce is dosed with like the scarecrow gas or whatever. And he's having this hallucination and he remembers his parents and he sees them walking into a tunnel and then the tunnel becomes a gun sight and then a bullet mm. fires out of it. And then blood starts pouring out of the gun. Apparently they later <laughs> yeah. the blood to a different color, but the version I saw was like a friend's videotape of the first airing and it was blood. Oh, okay. Blood. And I was like, I was a bit stoned at the time we were watching it too. And I couldn't believe this was a three o'clock in the afternoon kids cartoon. And they were right. With like yeah. Network sensors and stuff that we didn't have to deal with almost at all. Like working mm -hmm. this show, like our show is PG because we wanted it to be a thing for parents and, and kids to watch together because, you know, we'd been finding talking to, you know, friends and other people we knew who had watched the show when they were kids, they all have kids now. 
And so right. they, you know, when right. HBO Max launched, that one of the things that they were excited about was that they could watch all those old Batman cartoons again with their kids. And I'm like desperately waiting for my five year old to be old enough where I'm like, we can do the, the original yeah, Batman. Seven, I'm like seven so excited is, for that moment. Seven is where they will apparently, uh, my friend's, uh, my friend's seven. son is seven. And he sent, they, they sent me a video of, uh, that his, him and his 11 year old sister, when they first, uh, she worked on the show too. Um, my friend, my friend Hallie worked on the show, um, and oh, cool. her boyfriend's kids uh, were so excited that she was finally writing something that she would, that they would be able to watch. That she started showing them the old cartoons, and she sent me a video, and they were eating dinner, and they were just staring at the TV and they were eating, and they were just watching the old Batman cartoons, and they made them watch them in order from the beginning, and they're still mm -hmm. watching like every every day they watch like two episodes or something. And that sounds amazing. It's the only thing that like makes them not want to like look at phones or, you know, go play, um, you know, uh, Fortnite or something like yeah, yeah, it, right. it really like held their attention, which I was like, that's amazing to think of. Yeah. You know, that's what cartoons are like when I was a kid, you know, I woke up early for Saturday morning cartoons. So like, I get that, but yeah, that cartoon is powerful, you know? So, um, yeah, Bruce, uh, like I sent him that email and he emailed back like the next day asking if I could get on the phone uh, to talk to him, to talk to him about it. And he'd sort of tell me the gist of the show. And then it came out in that conversation that he didn't have like a showrunner head writer yet and that they were going to do it a little bit different than they'd done back in the old days where they just had like a story editor like who was in charge and they would sit and work out what the episodes were and then just give outlines to writers and then you know they'd have to just rewrite whatever they got back but they wanted to do like a full you know like a small but a writing room where we actually like broke the whole season and you know everybody wrote episodes and so he offered me that job and i just thought I was coming off of this other thing where I was really disappointed we hadn't, you know, sold anything because we were out in the pandemic. And I just thought, well, this show is greenlit. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so it won't be wasted effort. And, you know, it'll be, it'll be working with Bruce Tim and it's, you know, virtual meetings, you know, so, you know, it's not a huge time commitment every day because no one wants to be on Zoom for more than two or three hours. Um, so I just thought it'll be fun. You know, and I helped him, you know, like I brought in my friend Hallie Gross, who I worked with on Westworld and Too Old to Die Young. And, you know, she's written on a bunch of TV shows and she wrote on um, she she co-wrote the second Last of Us game. Um, oh, yeah. And great. So, game. Yeah. She, yeah. She's yeah. She's and she's just a really great friend of mine. And I love working with her. And I brought her in and then. Um, I think Bad Robot or Sixth in Idaho like found uh, these. Uh, well, they didn't, didn't find them because they were they're working in Hollywood. <laughs> but this uh, these twins, the Evo twins, who uh, um, had a movie that just came out that they wrote and directed, um, and they were like very new to the industry and younger. Um, and we got them, and so we had like this little and and this uh, this guy Jace Ritchie, who's like a. a more of like a animation writer who's been, who's worked for like Disney and Warner brothers on all sorts of, you know, kids stuff. And, you know, so he was kind of like our more veteran, um, guy who, who had a lot of insight into the production end of it too. Um, but yeah, we just would meet 
every day for like hours and everyone who was there said it was the most fun job they'd had in Hollywood. Like we were laughing, coming up with Batman ideas and, you know, Bruce, you know, Bruce would, you know, shoot down our ideas and we'd argue with them. And, you know, it was, it was like, a, it was a lot of fun, but I will say like the main thing, you know, about the show is like, there's definitely moments in the show where I'm like, Oh, I wrote that or, or, Oh, I, Oh, that's cool. Like I, I remember helping, you know, us do that, but it's like, it's very much like Bruce's vision that I think he and James came up with together. But I think it really goes back a lot to what Bruce really wanted the original show to be. And so mm. like, it's a, it's, you know, it's PG, so it's not adult adult, but it's definitely more adult, you know? And, um, yeah. And it's, it's different. It's, it's not, you know, it's not a continuation of the old one. It's like a reboot of Batman as like a forties pulp character. And so it's, it's really exciting. Like when you told me what it was and you told me like, you know, there was a, there was a thing he'd come up with that was like a take on part of Batman that I'd never seen before. And I was just like, holy shit. Um, Hmm. so yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think he couldn't have come back to Batman and doing a Batman show like that unless they sort of let him do it, whatever he wanted, kind of. And so I really yeah. like I was just there and we were all there to just sort of help Bruce figure out like how to make the show he wanted to make and, and then, you know, write the scripts and get notes from Bruce. And, you know, but like most of the scripts were written by the people in the writing room, like everybody wrote two episodes and then um, we freelanced out a couple like to Mark Bernardin and Greg Rucka uh, wrote episodes. So nice, yeah. it was a lot of fun to bring Greg in. I couldn't not bring Greg in, you know, like Greg basically brought me in to help bring me into Batman. Like I think if the two of us hadn't decided to uh, bail on doing Batman and the outsiders and insist on doing Gotham central, like neither of us would have the careers we have right now, I think. That was a big one. Yeah. We really, it was just our passion project and we really wanted to do it. And we were working on this other thing that we hated and we were like, why are we doing that? was going to be Batman and the outsiders. I didn't know that. It started as them wanting us to do Batman and the outsiders and us wanting to do the cops. (laughs) Yeah. Not that. (laughs) And then we just finally were like, look, we really, really, really want to do this other thing. And we want Michael Lark to draw it. (laughs) And uh, luckily powers had, had hit like a year before that and was a huge success. So we were mm. able to point to that as like, look, imagine that book, but with the Joker in it, <laughs> you yeah, know, right. or yeah. Mad Hatter, or, you know, we can have a whole episode about, you know, the bat signal. <laughs> exactly. That's so an all time Gotham book. I yeah. mean, that one, that one, people love that book still. I mean, when, really, I, when I asked, you know, yeah, I think that book, like I met Chris Nolan at an event one time and he was like being taken down the line and introduced to people and everyone was very like shy around him. Like it was one of those times where someone walks into a room and the entire hush goes through the room. And I I like, I was like, literally heard it and I turned to look and I was like, Oh my God, Chris Nolan's here. And you know, it was like the event we were at was to see him be interviewed, but no one actually thought he'd come into the green room and like socialize with people or whatever. And you know, he's notoriously shy. And, um, so he's like, so shy that other people become shy around him, I think. Maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and like he was going down the line and when he got introduced to me, he actually was like, Oh, Oh my God. Well, nice to meet you. And he gave me like a double handshake. And, uh, and then, um, he told my friend who was interviewing him later that he was like a big Gotham central fan and he'd read all the, that's amazing on the Batman yeah. movies. And so I was just like, Oh, this is, that's insane. 
you know, That's like, super cool. but yeah, yeah, it was literally like the guy standing next to me was like one of the guys from Doctor Who, <laughs> you know, and he, he didn't get that reaction. <laughs> so <I was> like, <laughs> in your face, Doctor Who guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, he hasn't done a season of Who yet, so yeah, maybe, so, maybe then that'll be, maybe then. yeah, that'll be his next movie. Is like his take on that. <laughs> secretly a doctor who movie <laughs> listen i'd be, be there well <laughs> <laughs> so everything you're saying about the batman show is like oh my gosh we have to see this like i'm super curious what this oh man if i could is i mean i just, just like i'm so excited now. and show you art right now i would but i think bruce would yeah me and and <laughs> sue me <laughs> yeah yeah. But yeah, it looks, oh my God, it looks so amazing too. Like it's, uh, every, all the animation tests and stuff that I've seen are just, you know, and I haven't even seen it with all the final like lighting effects and stuff that they're going to do on it. So it's going to, I think it, hopefully it'll end up looking kind of like, like it'll remind you of the old show, but it'll look like it was made today. But like, there's no, like, well, I can't. I want to tell you more about it, but I can't spoil a show. I, I can't. Okay. I can't. I yeah. can't reveal anything from my, from from it that, that would get me in trouble. Unfortunately. <laughs> no, totally. I would love to right, we got... show you the episodes. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! That'd be incredible. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I think so. We've we've hit reckless. We've hit Friday. We've talked. Um, Night fever's coming. People should, well link all this stuff in the show notes, of course, and uh, in the adaptation stuff. Anything else that you want people to know about that we haven't touched on yet? Um, God, I don't think there is any, oh, uh, we're, we have a criminal story in the, uh, December issue mm. of the image anthology. I did, uh, I was trying to come, I started writing a story, a, a different story and I, that I kept getting stuck on, which was the first time I've been stuck on anything in about 15 years. Um, mm. and I, I circled it for two weeks and then I just gave up and immediately had an idea for a criminal story, which is called Teague's Christmas Carol. And uh, it is, it's the, it's the Christmas of 1977, I think, or, or 76 or something like that. And uh, it's a, it's a 12 page criminal story. It was kind of like our, our thing we did after the, after the reckless book, before we started night fever, just sort of like a little criminal palette cleanser before we move on to the next thing. Um, I was going to say, does that like, does that just like refresh everything? Like, cause you, you're so familiar with the criminal landscape. Yeah, if I'm ever struggling with something, like I was originally, originally when I started like outlining My Heroes Have Always Been Junkies, the the initial idea for the book wasn't going to be connected to Criminal. And I couldn't make the book work. Like there was something mm. about it that wasn't clicking or just wasn't working for me in my notebook. And then one day I was just on a walk and it hit me who the girl would be if I was, if I was like, I said something like, well, like I never struggle when I'm writing criminal, like what's, you know, what would I do with this if it was a criminal thing? And immediately like, the block was just gone. And it was like, Oh, it would be the girl from coward. And that would be mm -hmm. like part of the twist is, you know, cause I knew there was gonna be this whole twist, you know, about that she was there for a different reason. And, um, but yeah, when I made it a criminal thing, it suddenly became like a thing I was able to write like without, you know, struggling as much. And hmm. so that was a similar thing. It was like, it kind of, yeah, it's like, it just frees up my brain a little bit to go back to that. And, you know, I'm so comfortable with all those characters, but there's, you know, even though I killed Teague in the last big criminal storyline, you know, we jump around so much in time, I can still write stories about the worst dad in the world for the rest of my life if I want. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's always out there. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. So that's gonna be the image anthology this winter. And yeah. then I think uh, the other thing we didn't touch on is you did a you did a Parker story, right? In the in the new. Oh yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, yeah, we did uh, a thing. God, yeah, we did that before Reckless. That was a thing Sean drew after. Pulp. Oh, so you've been sitting on that? Yeah, he drew that right after Pulp, right before Reckless, and it was seeing the pages from that that was part of what made me want to abandon the thing I had started writing instead. That was like, I think on some level, I thought I was seeing all these interesting fantasy comics come out, and I thought what would be our take on like a, a sort of fantasy thing? And I had an idea that I thought was kind of interesting and I started sketching it out and it just started to feel too big and, and, you know, also a little bit too bleak in a weird way, like for the, for yeah. like the early days of the pandemic, it felt too bleak to be writing something like that. And I was seeing these fun oh. Parker pages come in from Sean. And I just thought, God, I wish I could do something like Parker. And I've been looking at all Darwin's Parker books and I was like, well, what's stopping me? Like, why don't I just, you know, and then, and it was like reckless came out in a burst of energy over the next like three days. I filled a whole notebook with ideas for the character and the initial, you know, like one page, like, you know, notes for the, for each book for the first three books, you know, like must've filled up like 12 pages of my notebook in just a couple days of, you know, and then I was like, I think this is the thing. And then I start, and then I wrote the opening chapter just to see, and it wrote really, you know, fast and I could see it. And, you know, I sent it to Sean and he drew it like the next week. And I was like, okay, I think this is the thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was like that Parker story. I just loved seeing that. And um, yeah, that was, that was really interesting because when Sean and, or when uh, Scott Dunbeer initially asked us to do it, uh, God, not long after, uh, Darwin died. Um, like I reached out cause I couldn't think of what I could do to help really other than, you know, like you never know what to do when people die. Right. And I just thought, well, yeah. the only thing I want to make sure that like his best work is preserved. Like maybe there's something I can do along that lines. Hmm. Um, so I offered, I said, look, if you need us to help like design a book or sort of help you shepherd it through print and, you know, through press and stuff like that. And, you know, and then he's like, what if you guys did like a bonus story? And I was just like, Oh, I don't know about, you know, our stuff being in the same book as Darwin's stuff, you know? And then he sort of convinced us to do it. And he asked us, or he asked me to try to find like, you know, a moment from one of one of Westlake's, you know, Richard Stark books to like Darwin had, had adapted a chapter from one of them into like a short story for the previous collection. And I just, yeah couldn't figure out what it would be. And it just felt weird because Westlake had passed away while Darwin was working on the first book. And then Darwin had passed away after the fourth book. And I just felt like I wanted to do something that was more of like a tribute to them, but I couldn't find anything in his work to like sort of take and adapt that would have that kind of message that I wanted to be in there. And, mm. And so Scott said, well, what if you wrote an original thing? And I, and I thought, well, can you get permission for that? Like no one's ever written an, a Parker story except for Richard Stark. Like no one else has ever been given, you know, has, has written. I think he let Brian Garfield use Parker as like a side character in one scene in a book once or something. Um, but you know, no one else had ever written it. It wasn't like, you know, when he stopped, you know, writing them, no one else, you know, like picked it up to do more. 
So I thought there's no way they're going to approve, you know, an original thing. And he's like, I don't know, let me talk to her. And she, he sort of pitched her the vague idea of what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, she had some notes on the idea basically, but I had to write it. I had to write the whole script before she would approve it. And, wow. um, so I just like wrote it hoping that, you know, that she would like it. And, you know, and it was like the most pressure I ever felt under writing anything, I think, because I was just <laughs> like, man, like he's one of my favorite writers of all time. I realized while I was writing the story, how much of what I, of my writing style is like absorbed from like him and Ross McDonald and, you know, maybe uh, Frank Miller a little bit, like with the, you know, but I'm way more wordy and and uh, rambly than than Frank. Um, I do terse little sentences, um, but like I realized how much of what I did came from him, because I because it was so easy to slip into like a version of his voice for that story. Um, so yeah, I was really just so blown away that she approved the story, and then you know after Sean drew it, uh, her and Marsha Darwin's widow both just you know, were, you know, super like praising it and really, really thrilled with the results. And, you know, that's awesome. I was, yeah, it was just so gratifying to, you know, to be able to do, you know, even a small thing to sort of, you know, help keep his work alive and, um, you know, but yeah, a lot of pressure and I think a lot of pressure on Sean too, because he knew his work was going to be in, you know, a collection of not just all like some of Darwin's best comics, but also like a ton of, his unpublished artwork that was like all these Parker paintings that he'd done that hadn't been printed. And, you know, yeah, no kidding. That book is a real uh, competitive field. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, he had to be in that. So I feel like we both probably felt the pressure there. And then I think that was part of why going from that to reckless was so much fun for us because it was like, all right, we just did something in someone else's world in this kind of milieu. Like let's do our take on something, but you know, let's do it. Let's do a good guy instead. Like, you know, like criminals are criminals, not that far away from the Parker world. You know, it's the, it's the Southern California version of, <laughs> of that world a little bit. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, and, and a little bit more focused on emotions than any of the Parker books ever were. <laughs> people care when, when people die in my books. <laughs> yeah. At least yeah. some of them do. Um, but yeah, that was, that was the, you know, that was one of the highlights of my career, I think was, you know, doing that story and, you know, just seeing it in print there. And, you know, I, awesome. I hope, you know, more and more people just keep discovering those books that he did. Cause I just, you know, I, they're my favorite thing that he ever did in his entire career. And, you know, he told me about Parker, I think the first week that I was talking to him on the phone about Catwoman back in the long ago. Mm, wow. And, you know, yeah. 1899 when we were working on Catwoman and, you know, Darwin was telling me about these Parker books and how he wanted to turn them into comics. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Very cool. All right. So that's in the, the Parker Martini edition. Um, Mar uh, what are it? Yeah. Martini last, edition. Yeah. Martini um, edition. Last call. It's a very, it's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine was like, what is a martini like? edition? And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe you drink a <laughs> martini before you read it. <laughs> It's like, it's like, like a, nice, like a nice coffee nice table book. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like my kind of night. <laughs> Other than building stories. Awesome. <laughs> yes, yes. I love my coffee building stories. Yeah. Um, all right, Ed, this has been a blast. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure having you on. I super appreciate you taking the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Again, we're going to, yeah, yeah, we're going to promote the work here. Uh, again, links for Reckless. And oh, thanks. 
Friday and all the good stuff will be here. And it's on Comic Book Herald's Best of the Year as well. Um, I, I really loved uh, The Ghost in You was earlier this year. Um, oh, thanks. Really liked Anna's story. It was super cool to see her get her time in the sun. And yeah. uh, I, it was it was not, it was the sort of thing where like I'd read the first three and I didn't know that I needed an Anna standalone, you know? And then when it happened, I was like, oh, this is, I think this is my favorite one of the bunch. It's a Yeah. She's, but it's awesome. She's our favorite character. She just slowly, by, I knew more of her story when I wrote the first book, but she's barely in the first book. She's just sort of, you know, a side character. And then she has a little bit more in the second book. And so I knew that the third book was just going to be about their relationship. And by the time I was done writing that one, I was like, oh, I just want the next book to just be her because I'm so sick of depressing Ethan. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I want, yeah. I want to have fun with Anna and see her life. And, you know, it was, it was a good, uh, it was a good shift while, you know, still moving forward with reckless. We were able to sort of take a little bit of a left turn. And then mm -hmm. I really liked, uh, when I came up with the idea that Ethan would be out of town on a case, so Anna would just take her own case. Cause like, well, why would Anna take her own case if Ethan's there? I'm like, oh, Ethan's out of town. And then I started writing it and I'm like, the next book is the case that Ethan's on. And I was like, oh, that's yeah, yeah. I'll be like, a, I'll be like, maybe someday I'll collect them. And it's like one book on one side and one book on the other. <laughs> you know, oh, that'd like, that'd be cool. Like yeah. a little paperback flip book, like the Ace Doubles that, uh, you know, used to come out for sci fi and, and pulp novels. Um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, the doing the two where they're sort of commenting on each other in some ways, I thought was a lot of fun and really let me sort of flesh out her character. But yeah, I think my favorite scenes in the books are the stuff when he's talking about Anna or his relationship with Anna, like these moments where they're together, like the humanity of it. But yeah, the last scene, the last chapter of the fourth book, uh, like all the stuff at her mom's wedding and all that. And that's, I think my favorite part of the whole series so far is just a mm. little part where they're at the wedding together. Just these, you know, this weird friendship. Like I just, there's something so human about it and it reflects, you know, some friendships that I've had in my life that are like these odd, unexpected friendships where, you know, there's nothing sexual involved and it's, you know, it's like, your best friend just happens to be a girl who's 10 years or 15 years younger than you. It's like, uh, I've had a lot of, you know, like close girl friendships in my life. And I really wanted to write a thing like that where they never end up hooking up, you know, like there's never yeah. any, will they, won't they? It's more of like, you know, will their friendship survive? Will you, you know, will, will love eventually come for one of them or the other of them and ruin what they've got? Like, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I, I really loved that idea. Cause you just don't see that as often in stuff. It's like, especially in detective novels, there's always, you know, this romantic tension between everybody that it just gets annoying. So I wanted to try to leave all those tropes out when we were doing these, but yeah, that was, that was super fun. I want to do another Anna book at some point. A huge revelation last week. I was like having a lot of notebook time, and I had a lot of like. I finally had my first moment of actually like writing down ideas for future reckless books. And oh, nice! Yeah, it's like three months it took me to sort of start. You know, like my brain started. You know, needing to put pieces together. Like uh, you know, I. It's. You know how writers will sometimes talk about the journey of discovery of writing. Like you don't always mm -hmm. know where you're going and it's like, you don't always know, you know, something's going to happen, but you don't know how it's going to happen. It's like, those are the moments of writing that I feel like are the most exciting ones where you're just like, you know it 
and and there's an inevitability to it. You're leading towards it, but you're not 100% sure what the events are. And then at some point, as you're moving towards it, you know, even if it's several projects ahead in like a series like this, when you have that moment where it clicks for you, you're like, I know, oh my God, I know the next three things. It's like, those moments are so much fun. That's one of the things I love about series fiction. I was talking to, I was talking to uh, Shane Black the other day and trying to convince him to do like a detective series more. Cause I was like, the only times you've done like a series really is like, you know, lethal weapon and you only got to write two of them and they didn't use his ending for the second one. You know, and so he didn't, you know, it's like, I would love to see a whole series of nice guys movies. <laughs> you know? Oh, like, yes. I want to follow I love nice guys. Characters. I want to see yeah. a girl grow up, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah, but yeah, I just, there's something that's so enjoyable about series fiction, I think. And, you know, like the end of book three or the end of book four wouldn't hit as much if you hadn't, you know, spent two books with these people already or three books with them. Now it's, it's just interesting. Like if you, if you do it right, you know, and you sort of fall in love with the characters enough yourself as you're writing it and drawing it. Um, like Sean definitely fell in love with Anna almost immediately. Like by the first mm. cover, I was like, Oh my God, she's the most vivid character in the book. Um, you can really, you know, it's like, that's the other magic of comics is like, sometimes just the right facial expression on a character will just break a reader's heart. You know, yeah. it's like, you can't do that with yeah. the word. You know, and it's like that. I love magic of words and pictures. And I think that's what keeps Sean and I, you know, just constantly moving forward like a shark of like, you know, it's just the power of that storytelling. We just, I think we both get something out of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, amazing. Well, and it's that thing too, where then the fifth book comes out. Yeah. And by the time we get the big jump forward, the unexpected oh, yeah. jump forward in time. Yeah. All of the allusions to Anna are way more emotionally impactful. I literally, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to spoil too much of that, but that, you know, I knew, you know, that was my, one of my first ideas I had for the book was that the third act would take place 15 years after the first two. Mm -hmm. But when Sean sent that first page, even though I had written it, I remember writing it and feeling sick to my stomach like mm. uh, the theater out of business again. And, you know, with the, the, the letter hanging over on the repo man sign and, you know, like, but when he sent the page in, like, I just, I got like a huge lump in my throat. Like I felt like I was about to cry because I felt like so attached to that place and those people. And I knew, you know, what the next pages were going to be. And I was just like, wow, if this is hitting me this way, like, you know, it's like, and I know what's coming. It's like, uh, yeah, people are going to have a, have a response to that. But yeah, I was overwhelmed by the amount of response to that book. And, you know, people really are invested in Anna and, you know, and Ethan and seeing their, you know, seeing Ethan have like that sort of tragic moment in his future, I think really was shocking for people. But I mean, that's, that's one of the things Initially, when I started writing the book, I talked to a few different writer friends, you know, to sort of bounce the idea off of them. And, you know, cause I was like, look, I don't want it to just feel like a throwback. Like there has to be something about it that also feels very modern. And like, it's looking back at those years from now. And I just suddenly was like, oh, that's exactly what it is. It's like him as an old man writing the stories of, you know, these are the interesting cases or these are the stories of, you know, this life I lived that are the ones I feel like writing down. Cause you figure like 
most private eyes, if you talk to them, most of their jobs are super boring. You would never want to read a book about it. <laughs> you know, like maybe they have three interesting cases in their entire career. For a series detective, we'll give them 10, you know, 15. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a trip to, you know, to, to be threading that needle. It's a lot of fun. Cool. Cool. Oh, well, again, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Loving the work. And, uh, and yeah, no, it's been awesome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs>